Hello everyone, I really hope you're well. I'm so excited to be sharing this interview with you with the prolific and controversial British artist Maggie Hambling, best known for her sculptures and intimate portraits, many of which are in London's National Portrait Gallery. Maggie's experience of death has prompted her to explore those feelings about it in her work and using her art as a way of keeping her relationship alive with those that she loves after their death. If you love someone, any, for anyone, not just me, I mean, they go on being alive inside you. And so they haven't died, really. But I have made, I mean, George Melly always said I'd go down in art history as Maggie Coffin Hambling. Well, I mean, the people close to me like George, like Henrietta Marais. I mean, I've got on painting them, you know, after they've died. And I suppose, and as you, you know, you said the word therapy, of course, it's an enormous help. It's a positive way of grieving. Maggie sees herself as a channel for truth to come through in her drawings, paintings or sculptures and how death itself can make you feel alive. Maggie reveals her thoughts about her own death and how terrified she is of it and how all her life she has been a non-conformist by being truthful in her work. You might be curious to know what lies beneath Maggie's grumpy exterior, which she calls her armour. This episode does contain some strong language and intimate chat about her own experiences of death and dying. And as ever, if you have enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could subscribe and rate it as it really helps others to find it. Do you feel that it was inevitable that you would do art in your life? Like, is that something that you thought about when you were very young or? No, when I was very young, I wanted to be a Wren Admiral. Did you? Because I, I thought uh, it was a very sexy uniform. <laughs> I was born in 45, so there were, you know, all our, our guiders and things wore uh, their wrens uniforms, and I thought mm. that was pretty sexy. And I, and I reckoned it'd be better to be an admiral because it'd be better to be in charge. So after this ambition of being a wren admiral, which hasn't come to pass, yeah. uh, I wasn't at all sure until the art exam when I was 14, where I did nothing uh, but flick paint at people and um, generally draw attention to myself because I was deeply in love with the biology mistress who was invigilating the exam. Yeah. And then I saw the clock and it was 20 past three and I realised I'd got to do a painting and hand it in at half past three, so I just did one. And when the results came out about two or three weeks later, I was top of art, so I thought... This is this is interesting. I must look into this. You know, you don't have to try, and you're good at it. And anyway, so that without that art teacher at that school, mm. I might never have known. It's amazing. And then I, uh, I remember I stayed up all night, well, until about two o'clock in the morning, trying to paint the night sky out of my bedroom window. And I took them into school the next day, and they were all laid out and. The art teacher wandered in. She was called Yvonne Drury. She was a proper artist, a practicing artist. Uh, and I was sort of standing in the corner, sort of on the point of tears, and she said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I was up until two in the morning doing all these paintings, and, and all the other girls were laughing at them. 
And she sort of took me on one side and said, well, look, this has to be water off a duck's back. Mm. You know, you're your own best critic. You have to develop what I, somebody said to me later in life, this backbone of steel mm. about what everybody says about your work and yet remain vulnerable, you know, to feel things to make the work with. Mm. Um, <clears throat> you've said in the past that your mum described you as the most perverse child she'd ever come across. Obstinate. Obstinate. And she liked... If she liked the cracks to be covered up, whereas you like to show them. And obviously part of being an artist is uncovering those cracks. Do you feel that in your work you've that's that's what you've tried to do, that you've been this sort of authentic, your authentic self? In life and in work. In well, I mean, in my do. portraits, I'm not exactly known for glamorizing people. Mm. I try to paint in the portrait the, the spirit of the person, what's inside them, and... Uh, so I suppose they're sort of no holds barred. I mean, if somebody begins to pose and has a certain expression, they try to present a, a sort of perhaps a proud heroic expression or something like that. Mm. Well, that falls apart after about 20 minutes. And, uh, you know, as an artist, one is a, a searcher after the truth, a seeker after the truth. So I try to go for the truth in my work, mm. and that is... Uh, as you know, can be pretty brutal. Mm. But I love that in a way because I like that sort of honesty in your work. And, and in a way, I feel it's very, you know, people say it's brutal, but for me, it feels really emotional. You know, when you look at the way that you've expressed that person, it's really powerful. Um, and I, I wanted to mention your one of your mentors, Arthur Let, Let Haynes. And he... It's been quoted in a few interviews with you where he said, or, you know, that art is there to express how you're feeling and to have a conversation with... What, what he said was that if I was going to be an artist, I, I went to Benton End, the East Anglian School of Painting and Drawing, which was set up on the edge of Hadley, where I grew up in Suffolk, mm. when I was 15 with my first two oil paintings under my arm because my parents needed some sort of uh, encouragement that this was a good idea... And it was a summer evening, and Let came to the door. And he was very tall and, I suppose, rather certainly imposing, possibly rather frightening. And I said, is Sir Cedric Morris at home, please? And he said, Cedric Morris is having his dinner. So I said, well, may I wait? And I went, he said, well, yes, I suppose so. So he ushered me in, and Cedric was at the end of a long table, and mm. Let, who was a very great cook, was bringing him dish after dish, I mean, this is 1960. I don't know who was eating couscous in 1960. Not many people. We certainly weren't. Anyway, Cedric was very charming and giggly and uh, nice. And at the end of this this dinner, which composed of at least five courses, um, Cedric said, well, put the paintings up at the end there on that storage heater. And, uh, he looked at them and he was very encouraging. He made certain criticisms and then let wandered back into the room from the kitchen. Uh, he didn't sit down to eat. He was, by, I suppose, by the evening, almost 10 o'clock at night, mm. he was drinking wine by then. Uh, and he was very encouraging but made entirely the opposite criticisms. And then as I left, he said, well, I suppose you're still at school. And I said, yes. 
And he said, well, come along and paint in the holidays with the students. And so the first day of the holidays, I was there. But I was too nervous to go up to the drive and knock on the door of the house. And I sat in the ditch at the end of the drive and painted the ditch. <laughs> and then an old, old painter called Lucy Harwood came out of the house ringing a, a large cowbell for people to go in for elevenses. And mm. so I went in, and that's really where life began. And I worked with Let in the kitchen. And that's where he said the most important thing anyone's ever said to me. He said, if you're going to be an artist, you have to make your work your best friend. In other mm. words, you can go to it whatever you're feeling. You know, you're tired, you're, you're full of energy, you're sad, you're bored, you're randy, whatever it is, go to your work and have a conversation with it. Mm. And that's how I've lived my life. I mean, unless unless your work is is the absolute priority of your life, there's not a lot of point in uh, doing it. I mean, my life is my work and my work is my life. Mm. And the time in the studio is kind of real time and the rest is uh, a charade, really. Yeah. Like a bit of a drink, a bit of a laugh. <laughs> Do you feel like you're, you're most real here then, Maggie? In, it's in most real time yeah. in the studio, making okay. something. And obviously this is a podcast about death. And when I first met you a while ago, you said, you know, you, you don't like the idea of talking about death. That's what you said to me. And I, and I know there's a thread of death which is really consistent in your work. And it's a really big theme. Um, and you've, you know, you've often painted your loved ones, your friends, your family. Um, you know, many people would shrink away from that. Why, why, why don't you? Is it a therapeutic process that... Well, W.H. Auden likened the, the business of making art to breaking bread with the dead, and I think that's a, a pretty good thing to have said. Mm. I mean, uh, nothing's going to have any life to it unless, unless there is a presence of death, and I think that's what you know, great painters or sculptors, great artists, composers, writers... They take one into that territory where life and death are together. I think that's really the purpose of art. You yeah. can look at a, the way a Roscoe breathes or whatever it is, or a Rembrandt self-portrait made all those years ago. Uh, art presents you with something mysterious and something other, you know. So you're not thinking about getting a new fridge freezer or something. You're having mm. this... You're taken to another place where life and death are together. Uh, and certainly, when my mother was the first person I drew in her coffin, and uh, when she, in serious, posed for me, you know, making drawings in a sketchbook or something, after about two minutes she'd rearrange her hair. Then she'd take her spectacles off, and then she'd say, have you finished? I mean, she... <laughs> But at least when she was lying in that coffin, I did sort of say, got you now, mother. <laughs> you know, got you now, mother. So she was the first person I actually drew in the coffin, although I had already painted from memory a portrait of my neighbour in Battersea because I was with her when she died in hospital and yes. I'd done that from memory. Uh, but the point about this really is that if you love someone... Any, for anyone, 
not just me. I mean, they go on being alive inside you. Mm. And so they haven't died, really. But I have made, I mean, George Melly always said I'd go down in art history as Maggie Coffin Hambling. Well, <laughs> I mean, the people close to me like George, like Henrietta Marais. I mean, I've got on painting them you know, after they've died. And I suppose, and as you, you know, you said the word therapy, of course, it's an enormous help. It's a positive way of grieving. Because as I mean, for instance, with George, I paint, went on painting him for two years after he died. And, mm. and I'm trying to make these portraits of George as alive as possible, even though he's dead. Mm. And I do remember coming up to this studio when... Uh, the two years that all we've been gradually accumulating all these portraits of George, and when the lorry collected them to go for the exhibition at the Walker Art Gallery in Liverpool, I came up the next morning and the studio was empty, and I thought, "You'd better just accept it. George is dead." Yeah. <laughs> you know. What 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 are the when you're painting them from memory, from how you feel? How does it? How do they take on a different sort of, I guess, life? Because that person's not here anymore. Is that? Well, I mean, George is still, in, still is alive yeah, inside me. Yeah. I mean, every Christmas my mother hovers about, so I usually do a drawing or a painting or something to do with my mother. Mm. And she died in 1988. I mean, these people don't, the people, if you really love them, they don't die. They go yeah. on being alive. And when you work, Maggie, do you feel that... You're a subject for the art to come through you. You know, do you, I, I've, I've heard you say something about clearing what's inside you to allow that person to come through you so that you can paint them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I... I thank you, Birdie. <laughs> That's my bird clock. I try to be a channel for the, the truth of the subject, whatever mm. it may be, to come through me onto the canvas, into the drawing, into the sculpture, whatever it is. I just try to be a channel. Mm. You know, Brown Cousy said it's not, uh, not difficult to make a work of art. The difficulty is being in the right state to do it, which means emptying oneself so that the, so that, uh, the subject can come through me and into the piece of work. I mean, mm. it's very important for, the, for instance, the Oscar Wilde statue sculpture I mean, there he is uh, still talking and laughing and smoking, do you know, because he's still alive because of his work. Mm. And I hope that Scollop has, uh, I mean, Scollop on Albra Beach, uh, there was certainly one of my ideas about it was that Benjamin Britten took classical music and sort of wrung, it, wrung its neck. And out of it came his own original music. Do you know what mm. I mean? And that's why the shell is, is shattering as you look at it and breaking. So there is the very classical thing of a scallop shell, which is uh, sort of breaking up in front of you and being recreated yeah. in the form of the sculpture. Yeah. And a lot of your sculptures have been controversial as well. I, like, I, like well, I can't help that <laughs> too. <laughs> no, but I like that. You, I mean, because, you know, people are talking about it. And I heard that people having sex on the coffin... Uh, Oscar Wilde's um, conversation sculpture. Oh, really? That That's good. I knew they made love underneath the scallop. <laughs> I especially made the lower department for for lovers. You know, children climb all, climb all over it. But I mean, <laughs> there have been certain trysts apart from marriages and funerals at the scallop. Uh, certainly the, the lower regions are available <laughs> and pretty private. 
I guess you wouldn't have thought people would be having sex on the coffin, though, right? But, you know, I think that's the thing, isn't it? it people, well, that people talk about funerals and wanting to have sex afterwards because it just makes you think about life, right? It makes you think about people and living and wanting to live. And yeah, I think death, on the whole, makes you feel very full of life yeah. if you're not the person who's Dying. died. And Randy and everything else. I mean, you feel fully alive because you're alive and you know that person isn't. Yes. However yes. much you've loved them. Um, and you also, as well as your mum, you drew your dad. And I thought it was really interesting that he only took up painting, was it at the six, age of 65? Or yeah. after the age of 65? 65. And 65. And you were painting him then as you started to paint and drawing him and you really... You wrote that you really got to understand him. I just wanted to ask you about that. What did you mean? Well, he'd always been a rather distant figure yeah. in my childhood. I mean, my mother was sort of like mother and father to me. I was very close to my mother because my father was uh, out of the house quite a lot. Uh, and I and by that time, really preferred gentlemen. Mm. So he was sort of in the distance always. And then... Once he, I gave him the paints, and five years later, he suddenly took them out one morning in Suffolk. The whole, the whole of, as he lived in Suffolk all his life, the whole of Suffolk sort of poured out in these paintings, you know. And it brought us together. Art brought us together. And, I mean, I loved him very much. Uh, once this, this sort of thing had been broken through by the fact of his making paintings and me making paintings, and we grew to love each other very much. And he didn't know he was an artist before that, or he just discovered... Well, he worked in a bank. He always hated working in a bank. Yeah. And uh, I come from a very sporting family. They they played every kind of sport, rugger, tennis, hockey, bowls, everything, badminton, everything you can imagine. And the tennis is the one thing that has stuck with me. I, I play tennis, believe it or not, in a very sort of mm. slow way. <laughs> Speed is not a feature of my game, but I do on Sunday mornings <laughs> play with three other ladies of a certain age, mm. and I still love it. And, of course, follow follow it on the television. I'm yeah, passionate about yes, tennis. Yes, I do as well. Um, and my portrait of Andy Murray is going to be unveiled next week at the oh. National Portrait Gallery. Well, I can't wait to see that. And is that because did they ask you because of your love of tennis, or did you ask to? No. Well, no. I mean, they seem to think I was the right person to paint him. I mean, I've been a lifetime, well, since he started, been a great fan of Andy's, and yeah. and quite by chance, he during his injury time has got more and more interested in 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 art and going to galleries and museums mm. and things. And he'd bought a painting of mine, so and so we met, and then in due course. Uh, the portrait of this time. Wonderful. Wow. In this episode, I'd like to highlight the charity Painting in Hospitals, which is an organisation that uses art in hospitals to inspire better health and mental well-being in patients, carers and communities. Art in Hospitals can connect and take someone outside their medical experience and can really help lessen their anxiety. So have a look on their website for more information on what they do. And if you would like to donate, that would also be incredible. Have a look on www.paintinginhospitals.org.uk. Now back to Maggie. Have Obviously, we've talked about you painting people dying and you talked about your neighbour that you 
painted and and you were there when she died yeah which is very intimate to be with your neighbor i guess you were very close well uh, francis rose she was an old lady in her 80s she's mm. wonderful had a lot of spirit i mean she used to sew sew bells onto the bottoms of a pair of uh, long red knickers for the old people's party and she's a great old girl and she posed for four paintings while she was alive mm. for me and then uh, she became ill and the hospital no longer exists. It was Clap on Clapham Common. It was Clapham Hospital for, for Women, I think it was called. And I w was visiting her and then I went again and I was just sort of sitting there and holding her hand. And I kept sitting there and holding her hand. And then the nurse came along and said, I said, there's no point in you sitting there any longer. She's gone. And I don't know at what point she'd actually died. She just looked very happy. It was lying there. So I don't know at what point she died. But, but you know, I couldn't kind of get it out of my head, this, this, because it was my first experience of being with someone as they died. And uh, so about a week later, my neighbor in Tennyson Street down the road uh, said, well, if you're, you know, if it's still so much inside you, I think you ought to paint it. And so that became the first, you know, painting from memory of Francis Rose. Yeah. Mm. And it was a help to make that painting. Yeah, to process. But I think artists are very lucky. I mean, you know, you feel like murdering somebody. Well, well, you know, some people would murder that person. But if you, if you could write a poem about it, write a piece of music, paint a painting, you know, whatever hell it is in making the piece of work, I mean, it's a lot less trouble than actually doing it, isn't it? Mm, so absolutely. I think artists are very lucky that they yeah. can they can uh, make a piece of work about the most important things. And also they're often the things that people don't want to talk about. So... Oh, yes. You know... Well, we have favorite. all these words, don't we? As gone. And lost. Or... Passed yeah. away. Passed away. I mean, nobody actually says that somebody dies, which is the fact. And when I went to draw my father in his coffin in the Chapel of Rest of Had in Hadley, where I grew up, where he lived in Suffolk, and it was arranged that I was going to arrive in my sketchbook, and, <laughs> and there in charge of the Chapel of Rest was, was a woman that... I'd had the most enormous crush on throughout my teenage years when I was taken to watch hockey matches because both my parents umpired hockey. Mm. And she was quite unlike the rest of the hockey players. She was very glamorous, wore makeup, and was quite sexy. And, uh, and there was this person in charge of the Chapel of Rest. I remember, I know, I know that I blushed. And she said, oh, hello, Maggie, has been expecting <laughs> you. And uh, anyway, I got over the blushing. And then she said, oh, your father's in there, pointing at the, the door off the, the front of house arrangements of the little Chapel of Rest. And, he, and she said, now, look, before you go in there, uh, I've got to say something to you. So I said, oh, yes, yes. And she said, well, you know your father always had a bit of a twinkle in his eye. I said, well, yes. And she said, well, it's gone. 
I didn't know where to look. I mean, of course it's gone. He's dead, you know. She said, I thought I should say. She says, absolutely seriously. He always had a bit of a twinkle. It's gone. <laughs> so when I'd recovered from this extraordinary... <laughs> I said, yes, yes, it's fine. I've drawn dead people before. It's absolutely fine. So then she opened the door. And I said, look, it's pitch dark in there. I've come to draw father. I can't see him. She said, oh, they like it like that. They don't like my... I said, they? He said, well, relations. She said, they don't like it light in there. They like it pretty okay. dark. So I said, well, I can't see him. So she said, well, there's a door up the other end. There are a lot of urns through there, but you might get, you won't mind that. I said, no, I won't mind that. A bit of daylight was coming in the other end, but I still couldn't really see him. So I said, I know what. She said, you take charge here, like be on the telephone, <laughs> and I'll go to Partridge's, which is an enormous kind of... Um, tool shop DIY place and get a torch so she left to go to Partridge's to buy a torch and I was left in charge of the chapel of rest god luckily nobody telephoned I wouldn't have known what anyway and she came back and she stood holding with a you know after a little while your arm begins to shake yeah. doesn't it so I got these sort of disco lights from the torch on coffin <laughs> on the coffin and father lying in the coffin. I said, This is no good, Carl, it's no good. And she said, No, it's not much good. So we left the door open from the front office and to, to the, the yeah, yeah, to let the light in and uh, my eyes got accumulated, you know, acclimatized to the dark and everything. But these flashing disco lights going all over dead father was quite the whole morning was quite funny, really. <laughs> that's quite in a way, that's it's nice that you've remembered that part of it in a in a way, you know, the fact you were able to see the funny sides. Of well, yes, it was hilarious. <laughs> oh. And obviously, as you get older you experience more people dying. How how do you feel like that's changed you, Maggie? Well, I mean, I'm gonna die myself probably and, and before you. Maybe. Maybe. We never know. No, exactly. Uh, I, what, um, are you scared of? I'm absolutely terrified of it, yes. Yeah. I mean, I am a bit of, I admit, I'm a bit of a control freak, and uh, it's the one thing I'm not going to be in charge of. Or any of us, right? <laughs> and, of course, as you, I mean, I've always worked very hard, but uh, as uh, as you know, uh, that there are rather less years ahead of you than there have been before. Mm. Uh, I mean, time becomes more and more precious. Yeah, I mean, I work every day. I get up ridiculously early because if I stayed in bed, I'd only worry about everything. So I get up about five and start to work. Yeah, that's wonderful. Every day. Gosh. Boring. Never go on holiday. <laughs> I'm very boring. <laughs> you could go somewhere and visit all those parrots. Mind you, there's plenty in, there's, there's plenty in London. Um, so I, I saw somewhere that teachers said that you were a very strong-minded child, that you never stopped talking. Um, I see you as a, a, a sort of true maverick, a non-conformist. As you've got older, has that become more important or is that how you've always been in life? Is that well, just I think I, I'm just the same. I mean, yeah. my, my mother was a teacher and she said I was the most obstinate child she'd ever come across and she'd met a great many children I don't think I've changed much I still get very angry about things yeah. uh, I'm still pretty obstinate <laughs> and certainly perverse I suppose <laughs> in some people's eyes I don't know would you say that's passionate though Maggie is that passion uh, I, somebody in time out 
years ago when I had a show, it referred to me as the grumpy doyen of British art. I don't mind that. I don't mind that. <laughs> I don't mind that at all. No. I mean, I mean, people eat one up. I'd rather choose who eats me up, do you know? So I know I'm known for a somewhat gruff exterior or something like that. Well, it's, uh, it's like armour to keep people away, really. Well, yeah. I was going to say, and underneath, who is Maggie? Jelly baby. <laughs> <laughs> Jelly baby. <laughs> oh, um, so I also wanted to ask you, you've, you've painted people, obviously, but you paint lots of other things that are about, you did a whole piece of work called The Edge, which I thought was quite interesting about the ice caps melting and... They were ex they were extraordinary. I was looking at those the other day, and they've got this sort of luminosity to them. Is it something that you're very passionate about? I guess it's like death on a mass scale, isn't it? It's like destruction, what we're doing to our planet, you know, how we're treating it. And yes, that that show is actually called Edge, and uh, well, I mean, there were many years of painting the waves of the North Sea, yeah. so the sea paintings, and then they became the walls of water after the experience of this terrifying. Storm where mm. waves, you know, 20 feet high were crashing onto this fragile little man made sea wall. And then I reversed it, you see. I mean, that was sort of, you know, how much more powerful nature is than, than us and how nature can destroy us. And then I reversed it, contradicted it in those edge paintings by how we are destroying and fucking up this planet mm. in, in melting the ice caps and the rest of it. There was some... Yeah. No, I'm very... Uh, I gave a painting the other day to an Extinction Rebellion exhibition Sorry. in Suffolk, uh, which they were very pleased about. I think that's made me a terrorist now, as <laughs> I think you're now talking to a terrorist because I, I gave them a painting <laughs> of ice caps melting, which is all you know, the the, the terrible destruction that man is now wreaking on nature mm. and animals and the rest of it, quite apart from each other. Wow. So, which work do you think you'd well a like to be remembered for? and be most likely to be remembered for? Well, I don't know. I mean, I remember when the, when, uh, I'm really, you know, one is most obsessed and committed to and involved with whatever piece of work one's doing at the moment. And I'm working on the sculpture for Mary Wollstonecraft at the moment. And mm. so, uh, I mean, otherwise you'd never make another piece of work. You know, if you like something you did in 1976, why bother to go on? Yeah. You know, but I mean, with, with the height of the controversy about Scollop, uh, and it was early one morning when I'd gone to draw the sea, and I asked one of the fishermen on Albra Beach, they have the huts there and sell fish, and I went, I'd never, I'd brought, fi I'd bought fish from this gentleman before, but I hadn't really had any conversation anyway. I was sort of the height of all that fuss about Scollop. I said to said to him, uh, well, well, what do you think? Do you think the sculpture's going to stay there or not? Because mm -hmm. they were threatening, you know, to get rid of it. And he said, there's only one thing going to sort that. I, I said, oh, what's that? And he said, Davy Jones. 
and how true he was. Because, I mean, with what's happening, I mean, Scallop could be under the sea in well, yeah. not so many years. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah, Who knows? True, Who it? knows? But I, it, Scallop does seem to have sort of touched everyone. You know, people, it becomes a, so amazing to me. It's a place of pilgrimages. Mm. I mean, I've you know, said people have got married out at the funeral. But whatever time of year, they always seem to be seem to have been uh, seem to be people around it i mean i mean it was given to suffolk coastal district council at the time so it now belongs to suffolk and all that and my brother said to me well you you could have asked for something you know uh, something back and i said oh what he said he said 10 percent of the car park takings <laughs> i would have been very rich nobody parked there before scallop now it's full every day i myself have had a parking ticket for parking next to scallop <laughs> you see so so but i mean for instance a portrait uh, the portrait of that wonderful scientist dorothy hodgkin mm. in the national portrait gallery i mean that seems to touch many people i mean you can't tell you know what i'm alone in a in a studio making a painting obviously with sculpture it's more complicated because it involves other people mm. in the making of the thing but essentially you know one is alone and then a piece of work goes out into the world and you're no longer in charge of it you know yeah. you haven't a clue but it, if if something is controversial then it shows it has a bit of life to it mm. but i don't set out to be controversial it just seems to have happened yeah i just I'm true to myself, whoever that may be. Mm. And what, so would you say that was one that you were most proud of? Or is there a, is there a portrait or a series of portraits that you've done or sculptured that you think, I'm really, really, I love that. You know, I, that, that for me was, obviously I kept going, but, you know, something that you think, God, I'm really, really proud of that. Well, I think uh, there are several around here. Uh, by a series of drawings of Henrietta Marais, I think are some of the best drawings I've done. And that painting of her over there, which happened in 20 minutes at the end of the day. Wow. And I'd rubbed everything off that canvas since the morning and had given up. You know, it's four o'clock in the afternoon, I'd always given up. And I thought, I remembered Let's words about however tired you're feeling. So I washed all the paint off that canvas. You can see that kind of grey wash. Mm. And just, and that happened. But uh, when you're real, in about 20 minutes, but I mean, it wouldn't have happened unless I'd made many drawings of her and worked that day on many failures. You know, you can't, uh, it's this thing of, uh, and tennis players call it in the zone, when a painting is painting itself, which that one did or that self-portrait up there, painted itself. I mean, you're not aware of what's happening. You're not aware of anything. And when the, you know, the painting takes over and paints itself, those are the moments you live for. Mm. Best feeling of anything. Well, my husband's a... It's actually funny, while you're talking, I'm thinking about my husband as well. Not that I'm bored. I'm not bored. Thank God for that. <laughs> Doing my best here. <laughs> I was just thinking about he says the similar way he works in a similar way that the best moments for him you know he could be working on something for hours and days and you know weeks and then literally he can get something in five minutes and it's amazing and he it, he just says you know I don't understand how sometimes that can happen 
But I think you've got to you've got to put in all the hours of creating absolute shit. Yes. For that for those wonderful times to happen, yeah. you know, and, just, and there are never any blinking rules. I mean, if I've been working all day and I can think by about six o'clock in the evening or something, yeah, I'm doing quite well. Uh, and again, there the next morning, and it's absolute balls. It's rubbish. It's no good at all. And then vice versa. You think you've had a really bad day. Yeah. You see it the next morning, and it's not so bad. And you think, oh, yeah. So there's always reason for whiskey at six o'clock. You know, whether you're <laughs> happy with something or whether you're miserable with something. And most of the time, I, you know, one lives in a state of doubt about the whole thing the whole time. But I don't think it's any good unless you. It's no good being pleased with yourself. And Maggie, early you mentioned feeling your mum around you at Christmas. Yeah. Well, what do you think then happens when people die? Like, what? Well, I, I don't know. You no, tell no, me. No, I don't know. <laughs> we don't know. So when you say you can feed her, what do you mean? Well, she just, uh, her presence is there, you know. Mm. She's she's very keen on Christmas because the whole family is together and we were sort of forced to play charades for sort of three days solidly. It's quite a strain, really. But, <laughs> but I suppose that's why... She hovers around at Christmas. Yeah, and it's nice that you can get that sense of her. Well, thank you. Thanks for... Have I talked enough? <laughs> you can talk some more. Thank you. <laughs> Maggie is now in her 70s, and I believe she will keep making incredible contemporary art until her own death. To find out more about Maggie, please go to maggiehambling.com, that's Maggie without an E, and have a look at her gallery, which is marlboroughgallery.com. And as ever, if you have time, I would love if you would subscribe and rate this podcast as it really helps people to find it.